I'm even happier seeing Karen's face on screen, so it's just beautiful. Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. I just love moving teams and then you have to do an initiation. Just love that moment in the limelight. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTV Sports app now. Now you're welcome along to Mondays Off the Ball. Seems a fair chance all four Irish provinces will make the knockout stages in Europe. Jerry Thornley and Fiona Hayes discuss after eight. There is no chance of Novak Djokovic progressing at the Australian Open. Meanwhile, he's at home in Belgrade. The sorry saga is finally over. Luke Jensen will talk to us about the tennis. Not just Djokovic, but about the tennis as well, which is now underway. Man City cruise on. Everton sack Rafa. Pat Nevin is on the football show after nine. Five three one zero six is the text number. Add off the ball on Twitter is where you'll get us. Richie McCormick is here. Hello. Hello, Joe. And Dave McIntyre in for a Monday news round. Dave, hello. Hi, lads. So uh, something we may come back to in the football show, Dave. I'm just going to throw this at you. You're a football lover, of course. I'm right in saying. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on there. Uh, Manchester City. <laughs> so, this conversation could be framed all the wrong way. I'm not asking if Man City are necessarily boring. It's more of a, an emotional uh, connection, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, they, there is a feeling increasingly, and, and I'm really curious to know what people think out there. So, 53106 or add off the ball on Twitter. They have uh, harnessed financial, muscle, tactical, technical, scientific preparation to an extent that we've never really seen before in the Premier League. So even though their their dominance is not unprecedented, we've seen Manchester United, Liverpool, other teams really dominate. And I'm sure that got a touch boring as well. But the games just feel uh, dead at times. And it's because Man City have picked up the game and put it in their back pocket and they're not letting you play. You know, it's not it's not totally dissimilar to Pep teams of the past or the great Spanish team, which won so many games 1-0. You know, we think of them as real footballing sides, but they won so many games 1-0. Uh, there's like a, a one-note dominance at play too often with City, whether they're winning games 2-3-4-0 or even just 1-0 at the weekend. And this is a deeply unfair thing to say about those players because they're all brilliant technicians and yet it's just a kind of reality of how uh, we feel I guess is almost the uh, point in some ways they're at their most exciting when they're pressing because there's such an urgency to their pressing but when they're cruising through games it's just hard to I feel very much (laughs) without getting too uh, profound about it yeah it's it's an emotionless pastime really watching Manchester City win games in the manner in which they won the game at the weekend because you never really felt there was going to be more than one or the two goals their goal never looked under threat the European champions looked outclassed and I liken it to in many ways to the last couple of years of the Dublin senior men's football team six six in a row where you knew what they were doing was brilliant you knew what they were doing in some ways was unprecedented in Dublin's case it obviously was but it was very hard to glean any sort of emotional joy from it. And it was a, a case of watching City at times thinking, is there any point to this? Because they're going to win the game. They're clearly the best team in the Premier League. And like Dublin, maybe in their fifth, fifth and sixth in a row, they're just not going to get the appreciation they deserve. I don't think the manager will. I don't think the players will. A lot of it is because people aren't Manchester City fans. If you were asking a City fan what they thought, it would be a completely different way of looking at 
get it. But it, it's very hard to warm to them because of how clinical and how invincible they look at times. And from their point of view, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And until they start winning in Europe in spectacular style and lifting Champions League titles, I don't think they'll probably get the appreciation or the credit they deserve. And there's not much more they can do about that. But that's just the way a lot of people who are sports lovers feel watching them. Mm. Rich? Yeah, pretty same to, to what Dave said. I think they're, in terms of the lovability, they're almost hamstrung by the fact that their footprint has never gone further much than Manchester. They're not a team that's travelled in terms of their worldwide appeal in the same way that Manchester United have, in the same way that Liverpool have, in the same way that even, you know, uh, uh, um, like the other teams in England, like Everton and Leeds and, and Nottingham Forest, like you mentioned last week, have managed to do down through the decades. Manchester City have always been a kind of a niche concern outside of Manchester. And for them to be winning so routinely is just going to leave a lot of people who aren't Manchester City fans just shrugging their shoulders at it. And it might be great in terms of its technical ability and their putting away of games and their forwarding of financial muscle and the fact that they're three steps ahead of even people like Chelsea and Manchester United now at this stage in terms of their finances and, and how they manage them. But it doesn't mean that people have to love it, um, and I don't think I don't think even people manage to hate it in the same way. And I think that's the point of, of Ken Erdogan's article today. Like you think back to the '90s when Manchester United were steamrolling through Premier League seasons, there was like a venomous hate towards Manchester United from people who weren't Manchester United supporters. Like they just really. Just did, like were disgusted by Alex Ferguson and the stuff that they do, and the same was true, I guess, of Liverpool in the 70s and 80s. Like people would be would be anti-Liverpool just because they were do- so dominant. With City, people have almost been browbeaten by them, yeah, and kind of shrugged their shoulders and think, all right, yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. So I guess they and won another league in January. Great, yeah. let's move on. And I, I think I, I think as well, it's it's where the game is. It's taking another step forward in the extent to which it's almost a touch dead. In to the extent to which possession is so assured most of the time. I, I was mentioning to Arthur a couple of weeks back, I happened to just uh, stumble last week onto Arsenal-Manchester United from 1998, the year Keane was injured with his cruciate. Nobody keep ball for more than 10 passes. Like, it was just pinballing mm. around. It was so much more uh, vibrant and alive. And actually, it was a tough watch. I find it frustrating how little the two teams were able to keep possession. But but at least there was that degree of jeopardy in a low-scoring game. And, and therefore, we saw Manchester United on numerous occasions, even in their pomp, with last-minute equalisers or last-minute winners and not racking up the points totals that City are. Like, we're now into an era where it's 90 points, points are, are over. And so I think that's exacerbating the situation. Dave, I think your analogy with the dubs is, is kind of perfect as well. You're, you're kind of sitting there in... Uh, in a, in a very kind of erudite manner saying this is good this is amazing you know you're telling yourself God, this, I need to appreciate this but there's just a certain secret sauce that's that's not quite there and uh, I don't know I mean maybe when Pep goes it all it all reverts and this is a Pep thing as much as anything but um, it's just hard to I, 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 it's hard to know what there is even to say about it past a certain point without wishing to appear to be you know, begrudging their success. And although I don't know if you can begrudge success for a club that is so wealthy, but in fairness to Manchester City, you can, there's all the question marks about where the money has come from. Look, it's been discussed on this show ad nauseum over the last few years and the sheer amount of money that they're able to pour into transfers and wages, they can afford to get some transfers wrong because they know they can just pull out the checkbook again. But I do think that takes away from the scheming off the field 
the manner in which they have put this project together. It's not just, they haven't just thrown money at it, like Chelsea have, for example, like Manchester United have attempted to do over the last five seasons. I mean, Manchester United have got so much wrong financially, whereas Manchester City have built it from the ground up. It's not just the tre- the checkbook, it's the manner in which they use their money outside of the big name personnel they bring in. They spend two or three years trying to figure out a way to convince Pep Guardiola to come by putting guys in places in the hierarchy that would be guys, pep guys, the manner in which they put the training ground together, the way they got operate their transfer policy now. There is something about the club that is, um, you, you know that no stone has been left unturned from top to bottom. You cannot say that about Manchester United, for example, because they have a net transfer spend of close to £450 million since Alex Ferguson left the job. And look where they are. They're in yeah. the worst position that they've been in in maybe 30, 35 years. So I don't think City get enough credit for how they've set things up off the field either. Uh, let us know what you think. 53106. I'm curious, sir. Lots of you out there making a point of watching Man City at the moment and saying this is a football I want to watch and this is something I deeply appreciate and I love them. Or are you uh, maybe in a similar vein to the three of us? 53106, you'll get us out of the ball as well on Twitter. Uh, there is lots going on, so let's pick our way through the news round and chat as we go. The news round is brought to you by Gillette. Put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. I knew this day would come, Richie. We're having to stop talking about Novak Djokovic and talk about tennis. Unbelievable, isn't it? Uh, the Australian Open got underway overnight and without Novak Djokovic, of course. The 20-time Grand Slam winner is back in Serbia tonight, having been deported from Australia at the weekend. He now faces the very real prospect of missing this year's French Open. France has introduced the requirement of a vaccine passport for all visiting athletes, starting with next month's Six Nations. Djokovic won at Roland Garros last year, with this year's edition of the Clay Court Slam due to begin in late May. Djokovic's absence means Rafa Nadal is the only Australian Open champion competing in Melbourne over the next fortnight. He began his quest for a record-setting 21st career Grand Slam with a straight sets win over the world number 66, Marcus Giron. And Nadal says the Djokovic situation has been a mess on all sides. For some moment. Honestly, I wish him all the best. Uh, I think uh, the situation has been a mess. He's not the only one that did probably the things bad in that, uh, in that case. Of course, there is more responsibles on, on all this uh, terrible situation that uh, we faced for, for the last two weeks. But, of course, he's one of the responsibles too. No? So, in a personal level, yes, I would like to see him uh, playing here. If he's fair or not uh, that he's playing here, it's another discussion that I, I don't want to talk anymore about that. Rafa, none of us want to talk uh, anymore about it. We're, uh, <laughs> eternally grateful it's over so the French point is very significant though I was looking last week the French sports minister was advocating the possibility of bubbles for unvaccinated athletes and on Sunday yesterday there was a U-turn where she said there would now be no bubbles and no exceptions you need to be vaccinated or you're not coming in that is it and that will apply to the French Open so Dave if that stands and if there are no exemptions and no exceptions, then that would suggest Novak Djokovic is down to two Grand Slams this year. Yeah, you can be pretty sure the French authorities won't find themselves in digging the same sort of hole that the Australians did for them. This will be 
black or white. You're either vaccinated or you're not, and that's the end of it. We won't be listening to any sorts of excuses, and we certainly won't have a list of possible um, get-out-of-jail-free cards, a list of exemptions that you can possibly pick and choose off. So it's up to him. Look, if he really wants to become the greatest player in the history of the game and record the most land wins of any player in the game's history, get that needle in your arm, Novak, and put an end to this circus. But it's, he, he is a human being. He's a citizen of this world. There's no mandatory vaccination in this country, for example. There certainly isn't in Serbia, where he's from. If he doesn't want to get vaccinated, that's absolutely up to him. But he has to play by the rules of the country that he's visiting. And that was the case with Australia. They handled it terribly. They should never have let him in in the first place if they wanted to go down the road as intently as they did. And he won't be allowed into France if the rules, as they are, potentially going to be are in place and it's that the, the second chapter of this story will be an awful lot shorter than the first thankfully now it's just sad that he's not there himself and Rafa potentially meeting the final would have been incredible it does look like Nadal I don't know who's going to be able to take him in this competition it looks like he will be the first to get out on his own with that unbelievable number and go beyond Djokovic and Federer the overall I'm just still disappointed and I have been for several years that We've got Roger Federer pushing 40. We've got Rafa Nadal at 35 and Novak Djokovic at 34. The only people we talk about potentially as Grand Slam winners, really. How is it the case? I've just finished reading John McEnroe's first autobiography. He talks about getting to the age of 30 and how he felt like a has-been and he just could not cope with the Lendls and the Beckers and the Pat Cashes of this world, the athleticism the likes of Volander brought because he was over the hill. And look at these guys, still the best two, three players in the world in their mid to late 30s. It's incredible. And where is the depth in the game? And why are these guys still able to win Grand Slams? Mm. I guess Daniel Medvedev won at Flushing Meadows to deny Djokovic the Grand Slam. He is the favourite well, for yeah, the Australian there's Open. A, there isolated a few, outliers, yeah. you know, like the Del Potros a few years ago. But, I mean, they're, so, they're, not, they're not very memorable, are they? Is McEnroe's book any good? It verges from being really boring to sections of it that are absolutely brilliant to read. So um, it's you probably have to read the, it, it in its entirety to kind of get the full flavour. But I enjoyed it overall. I was a, a lover of that era of tennis anyway. I was a huge fan of McEnroe, Connors, Lendl, Edberg, Becker, Michael Stick, Pat Cash, these guys. I absolutely loved it. So I, I do tend to hoover up those sorts of books. Yeah. On the whole, uh, Josh. The pack, the pack is cap- catching up yet. Sorry, the, sorry, Dave. The Pacquiao is catching up. Like City Pass took uh, Djokovic to five in Roland Garros last year. Medvedev obviously won in, in Flushing Meadows. Uh, Zverev isn't, isn't you know far away from getting a slam himself. Like there are three or four. You can throw in Berrettini in there as well. They performed really well at Wimbledon. I think is seven seed this week. Like they're there and they're ready to to kind of but take over and probably will be there for a while. Pack, do you know? Do you know the though? Will catch up eventually. Rich. Yeah, these guys will be in their forties and fifties at some stage. That's probably the thing, isn't it? It's a nagging sense they haven't catched up at all. It's just the other has it reversed into him. Because they're all ancient, but it's but it's no one it, it's no one's fault though. It's no one's fault. It's the pack's fault. They're terrible. Um, you're maybe maybe you're right. I, those guys. I I'd say their dominance was just so demoralising that the pack maybe felt it was a pointless exercise and maybe took their foot off the pedal. I, I'd be interested if somebody from the chasing group came out and talked about what it was like when it felt like you were climbing an impossible mountain. I guess Andy Murray is the great example of somebody who had to inch by inch drag himself up to their level very few others managed to do it the way Murray did uh, by the way just on um, the Djokovic ruling I mean look this is apropos of nothing doesn't matter any stage so the court yesterday they weren't ruling on the minister immigration minister Alex Hawke's rationale for 
uh, telling Djokovic he was gone. They were just saying, is it legal that Alex Hawke gets to decide? And they were saying, yes, it is. But Alex Hawke's reasoning was that if Djokovic stays, he stokes anti-vax sentiment. I think, really, like, 90% plus of Australians are vaccinated. I don't think Djokovic has convinced anyone that it was a bad idea. And the already anti-vax inclined have latched onto him. I don't really think he was going to stoke up a genuine anti-vax sentiment in any great way. I mean, if Hawke had just said, well, he lied in his application, therefore he's rejected, it's very unambiguous. I think Hawke has almost made a martyr out of Djokovic by talking about stoking up anti-vax sentiment. It would have been far easier if he had just said, well, he lied and I'm sorry, but, you know, rules are rules, so you're out. But I do think he's almost made him even more of a poster boy and, like I said, a martyr. So uh, I just think the Australian government have handled this abysmally on every front. Anyway, uh, Luke Jensen will join us a bit later on. There was tennis, so anything you want to bring us of note? Yeah, the third seed, Alex Verev, uh, beating compatriot Daniel Altmaier in straight sets to set up a meeting with the Aussie John Millman, while Wimbledon finalist Matteo Berrettini, Dan Brandon Nakashima in four sets, and he set up a round two meeting with the wildcard Stefan Kozlov. Coco Goff, though, was the biggest name casualty on day one, the 18th seed beaten in straights by China's Wang Qiang, the women's top seed and defending champion remain on course for a fourth round meeting in Melbourne. Ash Barty took just 54 minutes to send qualifier Lesia Tsarenka packing, while Naomi Osaka began the defence of her title with a straight sets win over Camilla Osorio so Everton then Rich yeah, it's reported that Everton have approached Roberto Martinez regarding their managerial vacancy. The Premier League club sacked Rafa Benitez yesterday after just 200 days in charge, 24 hours after their defeat to Norwich. Martinez spent three seasons in charge of Everton before taking on the job of Belgium head coach. He's believed to be keen on job sharing, but the Belgian FA do not share his enthusiasm. Mm. Dave, do you share Everton's enthusiasm for Roberto Martinez? <laughs> Well, he's the guy who's come closest to delivering what they so desperately want most recently, and that being Champions League football. But I would say there's a lot of Everton fans that would have serious doubts about going back down that road. He he has had a pretty easy job as regards international football, and he hasn't managed to win a big tournament with Belgium. That golden generation looks set to kind of move off into the sunset without winning European Championships or a World Cup. Um, there are many options out there. I know Gennaro Gattuso was, Gattuso was being mentioned as well. And there was such a sense of inevitability to the manner in which the Benitez era was going to end. He really needed to pull serious trees up to convince the Everton fans and their hierarchy that he was and will continue to be the right man. But they have been so poor and it's a huge blot on his copybook that they have been as desperately awful as they have been. I mean, his reputation was significantly enhanced on top of an already glittering CV from the job that he did at Newcastle and even the manner in which he left Newcastle had his reputation enhanced but for me it's in tatters now because I've watched them several times this season they've been absolutely dreadful and you would fear that they will get dragged into a proper relegation scrap because even the likes of Norwich as they proved against Everton are starting to pick some points up Burnley are probably doomed but they have a pile of games in hand and you just wouldn't know with them because they've achieved it so many times I think Everton are in for a really difficult four or five months yeah, it seems to be an absolute circus behind the scenes. So we'll see if they get Martinez. I mean, it's interesting he's checking out with the World Cup just 10 months away. And you would think this is the last roll of the dice for this Belgian generation. Maybe it speaks of his confidence levels in them. So Pat Nevin. I think he wants to do the two. After nine. Wants to do the two. Okay, fair enough. Well, yeah, he, want, he essentially, like, everything wants an interim until the end of the season. The World Cup, of course, isn't in, in, until November. So I think he'd rather combine the two, do the World Cup, quit as Belgian manager, and then continue on as Everton boss. But like it's, uh, it's a bit of a crapshoot at this stage as regards who's going to actually take over there in the place is a mess. 
Football was better in the 90s because it was more manic, less refined is a text. I do think there's a lot in that. I, I, I mean, it, when you watch it back now, it can be frustrating because it's so manic and it's so unrefined. We definitely hit a sweet spot somewhere. And arguably now it's just too refined. They're just too bloody good at, at times. And it's, it's, um, it's almost like Man City are playing the same game no matter who the opposition are a lot of the time. You know, there's no it, difference it, in if game. If you want an example, Joe, of the text that we've just received, I did the commentary and off the ball of the Liverpool-Chelsea game at Stamford Bridge two weeks ago. That was a game from the 1990s. Error-strewn, end-to-end, like a pinball, a roller coaster ride for the first half in particular. It was just absolutely brilliant to be watching, to be commentating on, and anybody watching TV that I had been speaking to after the game said as much. Those games are so few and far between, but that was a game that was a prime example of the sort of football that your texter has has been talking about. Mm. I judge a match by how often I'm on my phone. I'm on my phone a lot <laughs> during Man City games, says Trevor. Well, <laughs> there's a bit of that. Uh, Brendan says, I was at Man City against Wolves before Christmas. I was amazed how dead the atmosphere was. It's like their supporters are struggling to deal with the identity that they're working class, but the team has so much money, like they're not earning any of this. Even on the uh, tram home, the Wolves supporters were singing Man City top of the league. Be happy, says Brendan. That's interesting. I do remember that night on the show, by the way. There were two games on that night. You might remember, Brendan, you're probably paying closer attention and certainly we had Damon Delaney live on the football show and he had absolutely gone for the other game because he just had no interest in watching Man City give Wolves a thumping and this is like a professional who would appreciate the finer points of City's play and even he I remember we were sort of saying yeah I've chosen the other game too because he just didn't really want to watch Man City beat another team in a very forgettable but brilliant fashion which seems uh, so unfair Uh, we'll keep on moving so listen 19 million euro lot of ticket in Castle Bar and now Ushin Mullen I mean what a week for Mayo already Rich Yeah Geelong say they respect the decision of Ushin Mullen to remain in Ireland the Mayo fullback had signed a rookie contract with the AFL side in November but it was announced last night that the two time young footballer of the year will be sticking with his county This is very good news for obvious reasons Dave I did listen to a Vox Pop from Castle Bar this morning on the radio where <laughs> Uh, people were repeatedly asked if they were the 19 million euro uh, winning uh, ticket holder to which they all said do you think I'd be going to work right now if I was (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's an interesting one I did see a good tweet where it mentioned the the lotto win it mentioned Oshin Mullins decision to stay with Mayo and it was you know somebody in Mayo's clearly got a magic lamp I wonder what the third wish will be so I think we all know what that third wish would be, but um, it has been a good few days for them, all right. From a footballing point of view, James Horn will be absolutely absolutely delighted, similar to how Tyrone felt when Colin McShane decided that he wasn't going to pursue a career in Australia. They absolutely need him. He's one of the best players in the country. He's won that award two years running for a reason, and he's the sort of dynamic transitional player that they have needed to get a to bridge the gap between the great Mayo side of the last 10 years and where they need to go in the next two or three years. So, yeah, good news all right for Mayo. Maybe Oshin Mullen is the lotto winner, hence no need to, to <clears> go, <throat> you know. Let's, <laughs> let's not rule that out, I think. Uh, Rich, do you want to bring us... I'm sure a... he's probably better off for staying than, he's, uh, than he is for going, let's put it that way. Let's uh, mention Seamus Power, if we can, Rich, before we wrap up. So it was a big deal. I mean, not many in the history of Irish golf have been top 50 in the world. Seamus Power is such a low-key figure in Irish sport. 
Yeah, he's on course to earn a place at the Masters this year. The Waterford golfer into the top 50 in the world rankings for the first time after finishing in a tie for third at the Sony Open yesterday. Power carded a final round 65 to finish on 19 under bar, four shots behind the eventual winner, Hideki Matsuyama. He's now ranked 49th in the world with the top 50 at the end of March. Set to earn an invitation to Augusta. Not bad, Dave. I'm absolutely delighted, Joe. It's gone down this road. I mean, I think he's improved his ranking by about 400 places there, thereabouts in the last 12 months. He picked up another massive check of about $440,000 last night. As he said in his post-round press conference, he's pretty much already booked his place in the at an end of season FedEx Cup playoffs. To do that in January is is just astonishing. Like he's 14th in the rankings at the moment. So I mean, barring a disastrous next seven months he will be at least in the top 125 and he would hope to be at Eastlake with the, in the Tour Championship get to the top 30 and he, I think he's one of the great sports stories in Irish sport at the moment and as you say he's not getting anywhere close to the publicity the profile the credit that he deserves but if he continues to finish in the top 10 and maybe has a good run on a major at some stage and he does get to go down uh, Magnolia Lane and play at Augusta National I think we'll see and hear an awful lot more about and from him Yeah we'll all get in that bandwagon Fellas we're out of time thanks so much Richie thank you chat to you tomorrow and Dave McIntyre always a pleasure thanks Dave thanks guys well Gary Emerson in Cork won over 11,000 euro in the News Talk cash machine today he's already by all accounts planning a family holiday to Singapore good man Gary enjoy that we have reloaded the cash machine with €8,412.78 up for grabs. To be in a chance to win, text the word PLAY to 57599. Get your entry in by 3 o'clock tomorrow. Have to answer within five rings. Tell us the exact amount in euro and cent. That's €8,412.78. And that will make its way to your bank account. So remember the amount of money and text PLAY to 57599. Over 18s only text to your 50 plus your standard message rate to play and you are playing across the Go Loud network of stations terms and conditions are on newstalk.com we've got Luke Jensen on the way